My name is Marcus Knuckles. If I haven't met you before, I am not one of the pastors on staff here at Redeemer. I am a middle school teacher. I teach eighth grade core, so language arts and social studies at Fairhaven Middle School. I teach eighth grade, which means that my day-to-day I have between 28 and 32 kids in a classroom. And during that class time, I teach content, some of it, and a lot of it I spend my time telling, keep, telling kids what they can and cannot do, <laughs> telling them that they can't use the bathroom right now, that it's not a good time. I monitor cell phone use, hygiene, where they can or cannot put things, what their bathroom needs are, how they use the materials, whether they can climb on desks, throw things, break things, or move things. With that said, as a fish out of water in this space, I would greatly appreciate it if at random times during this service, you all could stand up, move around, ask to use the bathroom, interrupt, (laughs) answer a phone call, play video games with the sound on, and blurt out all of your random thoughts. All of that will help me feel a little bit more at ease in this space. (laughs) Thanks, Alyssa. Um, Rob asked if I would preach a couple months ago, and I said yes. And in this moment, my anxiety level is a little bit less than it was in the morning service. But I am very grateful to be here. I'm grateful for this opportunity. And I I pray that this morning is good for all of us. Uh, A little bit backstory about me. I am, besides a teacher, I'm a father of two girls, age seven and five. I'm husband to my wonderful wife, Stacy, and I would say I am a running addict, not recovering, still, and I'm an Enneagram 6, which I heard a same. Some of you may know Enneagram, some of you may not, and it's okay if you think Enneagram is a cult. That's okay to think that. Hopefully you don't stay there today. I'm going to bring that into our sermon, so I wanted to address that right off the bat. As an Enneagram 6, what I struggle with most where my tendencies toward our most is in fear, fear-based thinking, uh, which is why I've already envisioned all the worst-case scenarios for this morning. I've played them out in my mind so that I have control over them. I've already envisioned, too, why bringing up Enneagram in this space might have offended some of you. So I've already played out that worst-case scenario. For those that haven't pursued the Enneagram, it's a, in a simple way, it's just an identity-based pursuit in psychology, to understand who we are and our tendencies. According to mine, it's fear. And that's been the way it is for as long as I can remember. I'm sure I'm not alone on this in this room. Um, But, for example, I'm the type of person that one of the most used apps on my phone is the Find My app. (laughs) Because I'm able to see and monitor and keep track of the people that matter most to me so that I don't have to fear for them. I find that on my home screen, my main home screen, that is the the app that I go to quickest. Where's my wife? Where's my parents? Where are my friends? How do I know that they're okay? I'm very much like our little dog that is a blue healer, Catahoula leopard, both types of herding dogs. I am a herder. I'm the type of person that when my wife says she'll be somewhere at a certain time, if she's more than one minute late, I'm already picturing all the potential worst-case scenarios. And these days, honestly, we probably don't have to do much imagining to think of worst-case scenarios. As I said, I'm a teacher, so my fears lately have been that when I go to school, I'm fearful for physical safety for my students, for myself. I play out the worst-case scenarios. As a teacher, I fear for the trauma my students have at home and at school. 
and my role in meeting that. As a parent, I fear for my health, my children's health, in this waning pandemic. Recently, with the death of a pet, I feared for what happened, and I feared for my children, how they would deal with that. I fear for finances, for work relationships with coworkers, for responsibilities. You know, my fear of, am I doing enough as a parent, as a husband, as a worker, as a Christian in a secular workplace? And that's just zoomed in. If we zoom out to include national and global issues, we could accrue a list that's even longer of potential fears that I'm sure many of us share. I'm sure if we polled this class this morning, we'd all have a list of things that are on our mind that have some tinge of fear. But in the same moment, I bet all of us could say we should not fear and we do not fear because God is faithful and God is in control. So how do we take those two things and have them side by side and reconcile them? Today, we're going to look at a verse that means a lot to me personally, and I think it addresses our current moment very well. And wonderfully enough, when Rob asked me to preach two months ago, I chose this text, and it is all about the Spirit, which works well on Pentecost Sunday. So today, we're going to be looking at 2 Timothy 1, 6-7, which the Bible's in front of you. It's on page 995. While you're turning there, just want you to know the goal for today is for all of us to look at our identity in Jesus, our behavior in Jesus, and to know our why for that behavior. So would you pray with me? God and Father, Lord Jesus, we need your spirit, and you have given us your spirit. We are fraught with fears, yet you give us peace. We are in need of so much, yet in you, we have everything we need. Help us today to see how we are lacking nothing in you. Help us to see that we need not fear because you are in us and are shaping us into your likeness. Amen. Just a little bit of backstory on this verse. It holds a special place in my own life. Uh, In 2003, for my 18th birthday, my younger brother, Joseph, gave me a ring, and it was a very special gift. Uh, On the inside of the ring was engraved this verse, 2 Timothy 1.7. On the outside was inscribed, trust Jesus. And I treasured the ring, I wore it. It meant a ton to me. At the time, that ring itself, the object, meant much more to me than the verse. The verse was not of yet significance to me. But a few months later, after he gave me that ring, my brother died. And not to dive into his story, it was one we knew was coming, but he is now whole and well, and he's been in the presence of Jesus for many years, and I'm grateful for that. That ring, as an object, still maintains significance. It is in my nightstand. I treasure it. But the truth in that ring of trusting Jesus because We were not given a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-discipline. My brother gave me a ring, but in that was a truth that now means the most to me. So today we're going to look at 2 Timothy 1, 6-7. And I would ask that you stand for the reading of God's word, if you are able. Second Timothy 1, 6-7 says, For this reason I remind you, to fan into flame the gift of God, 
which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You may be seated. So let's first look at identity in Jesus. We have a spirit not of fear. So then fear of what? If we think of what is he talking about, fear. For Timothy, who the letter was written to, we can infer it was of persecution, failing in his ministry to the church, physical harm, maybe sadness over Paul's impending execution. This letter to Timothy written by Paul was near the end of his life. And because of that, because of the close bond between Paul and Timothy that we get through his letter, we can infer that there was fear for Paul. This was a letter to Timothy as an encouragement to be bold and brave and trust in Jesus. I wasn't aware that there were so many jokes about timid Timothy, but Rob filled me in when we were out running recently that often Timothy is kind of looked down as this little child that was so fearful and his tears and Paul wanted him to be strong. But honestly, when I think about what Timothy was in, I think about the fact that he had incredible challenge in front of him yet was still so empowered that he was able to meet the needs of a church, in an early Christian church. So that was Timothy's potential fear. Let's think for us, and there's a slide on this, for fear. Fear can mean many things. And I'm an English teacher, so I like words and definitions. So here are some potential thoughts for fear. A feeling of anxiety concerning the outcome of something or the safety and well-being of someone. A mixed feeling of dread and reverence could be fear of God, avoid or putting off doing something because one is afraid, or feel anxiety or apprehension on behalf of. The point in these is that all fear gives power to something else. When we fear, we give power to something else. When we fear, we take our eyes from God and we focus on what we have given that power to. Only the fear of God redirects our attention back to God. So as we look through the verse today, we're talking about the fear that takes our eyes off of God. And that's not what God's spirit gives us. He does not give us a spirit of fear. He gives us his spirit. So this fear that takes our eyes from God is our own doing. Here are some examples of types of personal fear that maybe we can all resonate with in this room. For those that text a lot, being left on read that can be pretty fear-inducing, depending on the content of your message. Uh, Another example, your boss asked for a meeting today, yet you just had a meeting, and they didn't tell you why you're meeting. That's fear-inducing. My child is following the curve, but they're still lower than the sixth percentile. They're probably unhealthy, and maybe it's my fault. My parents are arguing more, and more loudly, and maybe they're going to get a divorce, and it's probably my fault. Or maybe it's a fear that when you go to share your faith, you'll do it wrong, you'll mess it up, or in doing so, you'll be ostracized. These are fears that are common to all of us. We have every worldly right to fear. A worldly right to fear. Tim Keller often addresses this idea in his sermons, arguing that without Jesus and the truth of the gospel, if that's not true, if Jesus didn't die to reconcile us to our creator God, who will judge the world, 
then the only truth that should dictate our behavior is that of natural selection. If we don't have redemption through Jesus, then it is a survival of the fittest. And fear is a motivating factor in survival of the fittest. So without Jesus, fear is one of our tools that we might pull from. But in Jesus, that is not the truth. In Jesus, we are given power, love, and self-discipline. Jesus never advocated for a healthy dose of fear and concern. He never told us to engage your fight or flight response regarding every possible stressor in life. Instead, Jesus says in John 16.33, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. In Christ, our identity with him brings us peace, not fear. Jesus also says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So if we weren't given a spirit of fear, but we still have all these stressors and concerns and worries and real dangers, then what? What should we do? Jesus says, come to me. And Paul says, you were given a spirit of power and love and self-control. This is the English nerd moment. Ready? That list, what the spirit is in us, is not just a list. These are not three things we pick and choose. The ands, that's polysyndeton. Any other English nerds in here? That is the use of and repeatedly to show a combination and connection of all three. Not separate items, all three together make up God's spirit. So we're going to look at all three individually, but it is a collective unit that we receive. They are facets of one spirit that we have access to. When I, when I outline it that way, and when I think about God's spirit, the Trinity, I think about power, love, and self-discipline, and I can't help but hear the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I don't know if Paul meant that in this verse. That's beyond my biblical training. But I do know that when I read this, I hear God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So let's think about it this way. Power. God the Father who creates and sustains and judges all. Those are powers that are only God's. Love. Jesus, our Savior, who chose to die in order to redeem a fallen people. That is love that only Jesus has exemplified. And self-control, the Holy Spirit, which guides and directs and convicts us, as only God can, because he knows our innermost thoughts. So let's go from identity in Jesus to behavior in Jesus. And there's, there's a quote that I'm going to have up in a second from James Clear, who wrote the book called Atomic Habits. And it's a very fascinating book. It is all about habit formation and reformation, because we all have so many habits. He labels types of categories of behavior change as based around outcomes, process, or identity. And he argues that to change behavior, you have to change your identity. So here's, here's a quote that I think is useful as we think through this. The key to building lasting habits is focusing on creating a new identity first. Your current behaviors are simply a reflection of your current identity. What you do now is a mirror image of the type of person you believe that you are, either consciously or subconsciously. 
And James Clear, as far as I know, is not a believer. This was not a biblical-based truth that he was speaking, but I think it is directly tied to us as Christians. As a Christian, as a follower of Christ, my identity is already in Jesus. I have already professed faith, and my identity is in him. And so we identify with him. The question is for us, do we identify with him, or is it an outcome we are trying to obtain? Are we trying to be Jesus' followers? Are we trying to be a Christian, or are we identified with Christ, and therefore behavior follows? As we identify with him, saying, I'm a Jesus follower, I do what Jesus does, we begin to reshape our consciousness around our behavior. As Ephesians 5.1 says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. So as we imitate, we do that by focusing on the spirit. So let's, let's now look at those three aspects of God's spirit. First, power. When I think of power in our worldview, I often think of, and maybe you feel this way too, Power is represented by strength or a capacity to impact. Usually it has some connection or connotation to status, to wealth, or influence. The phrase comes to mind, though, absolute power corrupts absolutely. These are all the world understanding of power, but that's not God. God's power is creative, sustaining, and just. He made you. He knew you and knows you now, and he knows you in the future. His power could end you, could end me, before our next mistake. But instead, he offers us power in his spirit to face anything coming our way, whether that's temptation, hardship, success, failure, or pain. Given a spirit of power and love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is our childhood verse that we all memorize. But it is so true then and it is so true now. And it is continually the verse I go to to understand what love should look like. It is first acting and giving the best we have. God didn't wait for us to perform to live up to expectations, he acted. And in his act, he gave the most precious thing he had, the closeness and relationship with his only son. That same love is in us through God's spirit. It is selfless, hope-filled, and transforming love. God and Jesus chose to part, chose to separate their intimate relationship so that we might benefit. On the cross, as he cried out, why have you forsaken me? It was the cry of ultimate pain due to separation. Not only did God give up his only son, but he gave up his beloved relationship with his son. This love is hope-filled, believing the best in us while we were still sinners. He knew Jesus' work to save us would also have transformative impact on us. That's why we see the next important aspect of the spirit, which is that part of transformation. Power, love, and self-control. Self-control sometimes can sound like the deny-yourself command of the Bible. And though that's true, there's also much more to it. It's much more than just the command to control your desires, your urges, your whims. It's a practice, a training plan, a commitment to doing something on purpose. One thing evident in Jesus' life is he didn't just react 
without intention. He didn't just react to moments. He was very intentional with everything he did. And I wish I could say that for myself. But what about for us? For, for self-control, I, I do want to preface this by saying there's a danger in overemphasizing the portion of God's spirit that is self-control. If we put the emphasis on self-control, we start to step in and claim that this is how we earn our salvation. Self-control is crucial, but it is part of God's spirit. It is not just self-control that God gives us. We can tend to look for what we contribute to a relationship. And instead, by focusing only on what we do, we enter into legalism and works-based salvation. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 to 27, Paul writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This verse is beautiful and challenging. And I think when we think about it, we have to remember self-control is nuanced. It requires us to show up, to know what we should do, and then to do it because it moves us toward a goal. Self-control is hope-filled, goal-oriented rejection of whims while pursuing, a, while pursuing progress toward a goal. Let's be honest. In our culture and society, self-control is a concept that we hear most between January 1st and maybe January 10th, or the 15th if you're determined. Gyms and personal trainers thrive on a concept of self-control. But we're not looking for sporadic self-control. What good is dieting and training today if you're going to binge and veg tomorrow? The Bible has lots to say about what Christians should do and why we should do it. In 2 Timothy later on, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we are to be equipped for every good work. This, this concept, don't know why, made me think of cargo pants. How many of you have some great cargo pants you're still rocking? I love it. They're, they're, they're going to come back. If they've, if they've gone, they're coming back. I think of cargo pants and a dad. So bear with me on this. Cargo pants, the dad rolls in, and those are stuffed full. They've got pockets that are prepared for everything. He is equipped for every good work. He has... Snacks, band-aids, toilet paper, and because he's still a fan of Napoleon Dynamite, tater tots. (laughs) This is someone who came equipped. Better put, this is the athlete who shows up day after day in training so that when they need to perform, whether it's their race or the next training challenge, their base to pull from is huge and their confidence in their training is sure. As I said early on, I love running, and I've learned a lot over many years about running. I told Rob I didn't want to talk about my running, and he said, you need to. So I'm going to talk about myself, which makes me feel very insecure right now. 
I have run a lot of marathons. I began dabbling in ultra marathons recently, which is anything beyond 26.2. And what it has taught me is a state of mental discipline that goes along with your training. In it, you're required to train in a different way. It's not just the miles, it's about the headspace you have to get into. For any distance, though, you can't just go out and run a marathon. Trust me, I've tried it. Without training, to just go out and run a marathon, it's painful and it's ugly. Don't do it. You have to train if you want to go out and do distance. You have to have a goal, a training plan that you stick to, and most importantly, a why. Why are you out there? In running, you can train and train to be ready to run. You can train for the marathon, but you still have to go through the wall. If you've run a marathon here, you know what the wall is. It is brutal. Around 18 to 22 miles, your body has depleted all of your resources, nearly all, and your brain is tired, your body's tired, it hurts, you're probably chafing, you might have blisters. It is not a good, not a good scene. You still have to keep going. You're not at the end of the race. You have to push through the wall. So people train for the wall. Oftentimes, the analogy is that life is like a marathon. I want to argue that the marathon has a wall. I would say life is like ultramarathons because you go through multiple walls in your life. There's not one significant event in your life that will challenge you. It will be repeated. It's guaranteed. So in ultra running, you might hit four different walls in a race. You might have to convince yourself multiple times, why am I out here? I've been out here for so long, why should I keep going? That question, why, is what you need to have an answer for. Because when you are at your lowest, if you don't know why you're out there, probably going to quit. You can see the connection now to the Christian life. We are going to hit multiple walls, and we need to know why. We need to know why we are behaving like Christ. What is our motivation? When the race isn't finished and we hit the wall, what is going to keep us going? So we as Christians will go through multiple walls. So we should train ourselves for those walls. I train with high mileage so that when I do hit a wall multiple times on a run, I know, okay, I've been here before. I know what's coming. I can get through this. I've done it before. I've got that in my tool belt. If you've read David Goggins, you can put that in the jar. You can pull from that to gather strength. We should know our why. Every runner needs a why. Each runner needs a why that will carry them through the toughest parts. As a believer, what is our why for behaving like Jesus? We're called to behave like him. We're called to be self-controlled, to pursue righteousness like Jesus. But what is our why in that? Is it just the behavior? I would argue that as important as training and self-control are, much more important is this why. And this is the last part, the why of Christian behavior. We know we we know we have all we need in God's spirit, but we also are told to train and to have self-control. As someone who is performance-oriented and fearful of disappointing, go back to that Enneagram 6, fearful of failing, I struggle to not make verse like this, the self-control, my focus. Let's come back to the polysyndeton, the ands, the childlike listing. We have his power and love and self-discipline. God's power is already creating in you a new person that is paid for by Jesus. That power is already in you. What power could you possibly need to add to his? 
You have all you need in Jesus. So draw close. That's our why. God's love has already covered you, believer, so that the best thing you ever needed was given to you. And you never did anything for it. Jesus did. What do you need to do? What, sorry, what do you need besides his love? You have all the love you need in Jesus. So, our why? Draw close. God's spirit guides you to act in ways that bring you closer to him. Is your relationship with him about your action? Is it about your sacrifices, rituals, offerings? No, it's about closeness. So do what the Spirit guides you to because it brings you close to God. Train yourself, yes. But train yourself out of a desire to be close to God. God the Father wants closeness and out of his wonderful love, he helps us be self-disciplined by giving us his Spirit. That draws us close. The why of Christian living, Christian living isn't just to better ourselves or pursue Christ-like behavior. Our why isn't just to fit ourselves closer to a Christian mold of Jesus-likeness. Think about it this way. If you sin, are you still loved? Praise God, yes. Were you loved when you were still in your sin? Yes. While you were still sinners, Christ died for you. So your works, your training as a believer, is not for salvation or worth or significance or assuaging the Enneagram 6 demons that tell you you aren't enough, your work, your self-control, your discipline, your why is because God wants to draw you close. I have an admission. Uh, in the fall, I started to do streak running. Not that kind. I started to run every day. That's what that is. I committed to it and I have kept to it. Running regardless of sickness, of weather, timing of day, my eating schedule. I say this because what it's done is that it's grown me as a runner tenfold. By showing up, it has helped with habit forming, this routine to draw me close to a piece of running I had never touched before. I showed up and embraced my identity as someone who runs every day for months. And if you're not hearing it, I eventually realized what I had done. Yes, I had reshaped habit around identity, but my identity was a runner, not my identity in Christ. And so it took me a while to realize it, but then I found a resource, thanks to Redeemer, that is the Dwell Bible app. If you're not already familiar with it, it's an app that allows you to listen to the Bible at any given point, there's different readers from across the world. It's a wonderful resource for someone like me who has a hard time sitting down and sitting still. This then became part of my routine. I was like, well, I know I'm going to be out running in the morning. That's going to be my quiet time. So I started listening to God's word in the morning, and I've been going through the Bible in a year more successfully so far over, are we in month six now? Yeah, six months. I'm six months through, and I'm I am growing, and I'm learning, and I'm growing closer to God because of a discipline that, I'm not saying this to toot my horn, I'm 37, and I have never had a good routine early morning Bible time. This is the first time I've found that. So I say this to offer a resource in case you're not aware, the Dwell Bible app, it is very helpful 
through this, I have had the practice of coming to God, learning, honestly going through all of the time with Israel. Oh my gosh. It was just draining. I'd be out on a run just screaming like, why? Why are you doing this? But that, that showed me God's heart more. The more I showed up and saw the story not end with Israel, but continue on, the more I saw there is a story of redemption. And when you string it all together, it is so beautiful. So this showing up, listening to God's word has helped. The question though is, does my salvation hinge on my quiet time with God? No. Does my closeness with Jesus hinge on my behavior and Christ-like behavior? No. My salvation is already in Jesus. He has already done the work. The closer I draw to him, the greater the impact of that relationship will ripple out in my behavior. As I identify more with Jesus, I will be more like him. We train ourselves because as we draw close to Jesus, the closer we get to him, the more we see the beauty in training. So in drawing close, seeking the relationship, have I been changed and sanctified one degree of change at a time? Yes, and that is worth celebrating. By identifying with Jesus and having my mind on his spirit, through the practice of listening to his word, I have learned and grown closer to my creator. This last year, I discovered an artist that is new to me. Maybe some of you know his music. His, his name is John Mark Pantana. And he has a song called I Was Made for Jesus that is incredibly simple in message and melody, but the truth in it is incredibly powerful. So I think we've got a slide for this one. It goes, Cursed in the garden of paradise, you knew the pain from a lover's eyes. To get us back, you gave it all. Filled in the likeness of flesh on earth, you bore the cross that we deserved. You've gotten down on one knee. Spirit's breathing, now I'm living. We've been married, now I'm seeing what I was made for. I was made for heaven. I was made for Jesus. I was made to walk in the cool of the day with you. This last line always hits hard for me. Think about, for a second, who you feel Sorry, think about who you spend walking in the cool of the day with. Who do you, in stillness and quiet, feel comfortable and loved to exist with merely walking? Not performative, not achievement, not goal-oriented, just walking. It takes incredible intimacy and comfort to exist with someone in quiet and stillness, and just walk. That's what we are called to. All of God's Spirit is bringing us back to walk in the cool of the day with Him. So my takeaways from this verse, and I hope for you all the same, all of God's Spirit is already in us. It's all we have ever needed, and it's all we will ever need. It's our key to seeing Him, to seeing what He's done in us, and what he's doing around us. It's our access to the kingdom come and the redeeming work in God's kingdom now. We were made to walk in the cool of the day with him. Do you know what that means? We were made to draw close 
in comfortable companionship through his spirit to feel known and loved in his presence. His power and love and self-control are already in us. They draw us back to him, and in doing so, we are able to live without fear, with power to love selflessly, and discipline ourselves to return to him. Fear not. He has overcome this world. Our identity in him, with actions guided by his spirit, draws us back to him. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, Lord Jesus, for your spirit. The spirit in us to combat every last fear and instead help us identify with you, behave like you, and to know why we do that so that we can draw close and commune with you. I pray for the people here this morning that they would leave feeling drawn closer to you with the belief in the transforming work you're doing in them currently. We love you and want to love you more. Amen. At this point, while the band comes forward, we're going to do what we do each week, which is to take communion together. There are four stations on the outside of the room with little packets you can take. The only barrier to taking communion is the knowledge and faith in Jesus. This faith, as we saw in the verse today, is what gives us access to God's powerful, loving spirit that guides us in behavior toward him. I encourage if you don't already know Jesus, he wants to have this relationship with you. If you're a believer here today, think about the space that you're in and think about the desire that God has to be with you at this moment. For all of us now, it's time to seek communion with him. Go to the table as you feel led.